BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I'm Stuart Wright, and this is the Britflix.com podcast. On this podcast, rather than critique or score films out of five or ten, or tell you what we love or what we hate, I sit down with the filmmaker and get them to give us an insight into the process of making their movie, what they discovered, what they learned, all those kind of things. Or I get to sit down with a horror film fan and get them to tell me five great British horror films that they think we should all take interest in. Either way, this podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising. So, if you enjoy it, please make sure to subscribe in iTunes. And if you've got that bit more time, write me a review too. It all helps. Thank you. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today we've got writer-director Paul Knight. Hello, Paul. Hello, Stuart. How's things? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm in East London. Are you not a million miles away from East London? Just thinking about how far this calls travelling on the internet. Oh, well, it, it is miles because I am on the outskirts of Rumford. <laughs> <laughs> so we could have done carrier pigeon and probably had the same response time. Yeah. It always makes me laugh, the, the idea of the internet and then connecting people who, are, who could get a bus to. Um, yeah, <laughs> to be fair, I am one bus away from you, I think. It is, it's true. <laughs> but anyway, local local aside, um, we're here to talk about your movie, uh, Landscape of Lies, mm. which is getting a sort of, what would you call it, a uh, first-time director's cut edition in two, for 2018. Do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to what Landscape of Lies is? Yeah, sure. Obviously, so Landscape Lies, despite um, people trying to pigeonhole it as a gangster movie, it's, it's not gangster, there's not a gangster in it or anything at all. So we had a bit of that. But the actual film itself is mm-hmm. more of a psychological thriller. Yeah. And um, it's basically four separate lives that come crashing together after a, a serial killer's just killed a decorated war hero. So the, the war hero's. Um, Lieutenant, if you like, while they was out in the Gulf, takes it upon himself to try and find out what happened. And of course, as he investigates, he finds that everyone's connected to everyone, like like we are in real life. You know what I mean? They say that six degrees of separation. And okay. this is really what the film explores. It's how everyone could be connected 
and obviously their own stories that just unravel as he tries to thread who did what to his friend. Okay, so so how can people see the movie? Uh, well, right now it actually has its London premiere screen in June next Thursday on the 18th at of the Courthouse Hotel. January. 8th, 18th of January at where, sorry? Yeah, at the Courthouse Hotel. Okay. Up in London, just around the corner from Oxford Circus uh, Tube Station. Right. Uh, tickets are available either through Film Bolt or Eventbrite. Okay, well, I'll put a link in the show notes for you, yeah. so people can click on that easy enough. And then after that, I believe there's a limited theatrical release around certain major cities around the UK. Yeah. And then you'll see VOD, DVD in the spring, I believe. Excellent, excellent. All right, well, like I say, we'll put the uh, the links in that in the show notes. Now, it might surprise some of the listeners who are new to the podcast that this isn't the first time I've talked about this film, given it's only getting its release now. Um, it's uh, it's had a hell of a journey to get here, hasn't it, Paul, to say the least? Uh, <laughs> journey to hell and back, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, and I, I was, before we started this, I said I said to, I, I, I talked to Paul about this and said, look, we won't dwell on it because we'll talk about the positives of trying to make a movie and the challenges there in which I think in of themselves are enough, aren't they? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so so uh, there was, a, there was a, a couple of people who were involved with making this film originally who essentially committed a huge fraud, wasn't it? They involved the, the taxman and stuff. So, And that was actually made into a documentary about what happened to the film. Um, the uh, great gangster film Fraud was the name of it, and that was on yeah. Storyville. <laughs> Um, I, I just know it as chances. Because chances, was yeah. yeah it was that. I, I was just looking up before. It's like it's chances and it's the great gangster film fraud. And stuff. Yeah. But I spoke to Ben Lewis, the, the uh, director of that documentary at the time of that release. Two, weirdly, I was looking. It's, it's actually two years ago to the month, isn't it? That, uh, uh, yeah, Jan- January it came out two years ago. Yeah. And obviously he filmed it from January 2013. Yeah. It took three, three years of filming, yeah. So, so in that, so, so part of what happened, um, that from the, from from the point of when all the, um, the, the the sort of court judgments and stuff, and who got punished for doing what, you you were left with a film that was in limbo because obviously the taxman was looking to recoup money, and eventually you were able to establish chain of title because if you didn't get paid, then they didn't own the film in the first place. No, that's right, and obviously there was documentation to build up. Um, yeah to support that claim, which eventually the HMRC agreed and the uh, the authorities involved said, no, there's a clear chain of title now and it all sits with you, Paul. Good luck with it and uh, hopefully no more people like this in your future. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, so, so if anyone wants to know more about that element of this film's life, um, then there's that documentary and there's my podcast that we'll put a link into the uh, into the post when it comes up. But uh, let's not talk about that. So let's talk about filmmaking, Paul, the, the thing that you enjoy doing your head in Indeed. and challenging. Yes, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you wrote and directed this. So let's talk about the screenplay first before we get into the production of it. Um, yeah. You said it's about, like, four people, the idea of six degrees of separation and one incident bringing everyone together. So... Where, where, where were you, or where, or how did you conceive this idea? What was the kernel for you that that, that gave birth, in your mind, to the a landscape of lies? Um, well, to be fair, originally there was a script called "A Landscape of Lives." Okay. Uh, written coincidentally by someone called Stuart Knight. No, okay. no relation to me whatsoever. 
Right. Um, and they they were trying to obviously what happened happened actually against that film. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I came along, they just went, "You need to do it like this." And I said, and I read the script, and obviously, no offense to another writer, mm-hmm. but it wasn't it wasn't my kind of story telling. So um, I said, "Look, I just need to rewrite all of this." Um, as in a page, they, as a page one rewrite, you mean? As a page one rewrite, yeah. Okay. And then they just went, okay, can we just ask that you keep all the characters' names? And I was like, well, I would want to turn this person, the lead, into a female. I'd want to turn... I said, so I can't keep the names because it wouldn't fit. Mm-hmm. So in the end, they just left me alone. And, of course, the uh, <laughs> the coup de grace of it was that I, changed, I took the V out the title and turned it into a landscape of lies. Yeah. Which... Is the most ironic. <laughs> no, it is. It's. I remember. I remember that point in the documentary, and you're kind of like, "Wow, that is." There's some irony there, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> Which everyone involved found funny in light of obviously what happened. Yeah. So, um, so that was it. So I turned around. I wrote a very quick first draft in about eight hours. I mean, you know, there wasn't a lot of time put on this first right. draft. Okay. But I went. This is the outline that I'm thinking. And they said, oh, thanks very much. We'll get back to you. Um, and then they, they finally come back to me. I think it was, I'm trying to think now. So it was like, say, Wednesday, the 26th of May, say, for argument's sake. Mm-hmm. And um, they said, oh, could you just tidy up that script for us? So I said, yeah, all right. Because by that time, I'd had a couple of months to think about it and went, oh, I know what I'll do with it. So that was the Wednesday. I worked on it all Wednesday afternoon, all Wednesday night. Thursday morning, I sent it back to them. And I went, this this is what I would run with. So they said, okay, can can you come in and we'll discuss the script? So I went up to their office on the Thursday and they said, really like it. We want to make it. How much for you to come on as the production manager? Just to kickstart it, just to put us in the right direction. So we agreed to some, and I said, okay, not a problem. Went back home. Friday morning, I get a call. Could you come up to the office, please, just to discuss the production side of it? So I came up on the Friday, and they said, just make the film for us. So I was like, okay, brilliant, love it. Um, You know, how much time do I have? And they said, well, if you can start next week on the 1st of June, and you have four months to complete the whole thing because we want to take it to the AFM, mm-hmm. which obviously in hindsight wasn't why, but um, that was the excuse they gave. So I was thinking, okay, well, that works about right. Fine, I'll, I'll do that. So we actually went straight into pre-production right after the weekend. So the 1st of June, I believe, was the following Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, so I was still writing, perfecting the script, I was having to put together the crew. I think we had about two and a half weeks of pre-production time um, while I was still trying to finalise the script, get locations. We started filming and we were still casting as we went. So all the scenes that we had cast for, we did them first. Then, Then as we moved on, obviously we got it fully casted, then it had to be edited and we had... um, and the producers behind it, they they said, oh, how much to make? And we want these certain elements. And I said, oh, you're talking probably about £300,000. Mm. And they went, can you do it cheaper? So I said, look, give me 100000 cash. So when I go do deals with people, I can do them on the spot. If there's no invoices, a lot more doors will open up. I can move a bit quicker. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and they said, fine, we'll, we'll do that. Um, but they wanted like, Hurt Locker had just come out <laughs> and won an Oscar. And they wanted, they wanted the war scenes to be very much like Hurt Locker, 3D and this. And they wanted Omar Sharif in it, who wanted to cost me 65 grand for five days work and all, all sorts of things. And I just went, mate, just take one step back. Give me the money. Let me make the film and you'll be happy with the end result. So they, they wanted they wanted Ben Hur for the price of Coronation Street. Yeah, basically, basically, which made me laugh. And I tried to give him at least the <laughs> the remake version of Ben Hur, <laughs> not the original. Um, and yeah, so we did it all in four months. And at the end of the four months, I went round the house. We've finished um, the original edit of the film, all done, color graded, everything. And they watched it, and they went great. Thanks very much. And we celebrated with a cast and crew screen in that December. And then, of course, the news all hit us all what had been going on. OK, so then, then you've got, that, you've got the, the big hole it falls into because of what, what happened with HMC. Yeah. So then when you come out of that and then HMC, okay, you can have this movie. What are you doing with it then? Because you've got, you've, got you've got this rough edit of a, of a movie that goes, OK, this is what it looks like. Yeah. Um, but it isn't ready for isn't ready for for exhibition, is it yet? Is that right? Well, it had well, it had a distributor screening. It had two of them. Okay. It did, it did the film festival circuit 2012 because they'd mm-hmm. already submitted it before. Again, things came to life. Yeah. Where it actually won, you know, it won an award. It played at a couple of the other festivals. It was, um, and I thought, yeah, you know, for I wasn't always happy with the edit because it was a rushed edit, but. Mm-hmm. Um, so we thought, all right, but it's good enough to win an award. It's good enough to play here. It's good enough to play there. People seem to like it. And, of course, what happened, happened. Uh-huh. But in what then followed over the years, obviously, the more and more I thought about it, the more and more I got despondent about it. So, yeah, once at the end of 2015, when Chain of Title was proven, uh-huh. you know what, I'm going to strip that back and find the story in there that I originally wanted. Um, but I would need to re-edit it. So, you, so not... you had you had the footage, but it, but you didn't have the. It wasn't assembled in a way. You, you captured what you needed, but you wanted to reassemble it in a way that told a story nearer to what's in your head, as it were. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, no no offense to the editor, we had. To be fair, he edited it to the script, very linear to what was originally there. But you always know there's a different story in it after you've filmed it. You know of course, I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. What you, what's the theory? You write it, you produce it, you edit it, and then there's, there's three versions. It evolves into three versions as you go, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's it. And, and that's what I would have been thinking about. So when it came to me, I was like, okay, I'm going to start 2016. I'm going to be positive. I want to get this film out. Everyone involved in it, I think, just got shafted. And it was just a case of, you know, I'm doing it for everyone involved, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, I didn't know how to edit, and there was no money in the pot. And obviously, there's a big stink that follows the film, so no one really wanted to help or touch it or anything. So I thought, you know what, I will learn editing. <laughs> and, and, and how did you go about learning editing? Yeah, well, that, that's the funny thing because obviously, uh, are, am I allowed to say product name? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's just, that's... So good old Adobe and. Um, <laughs> Premiere Pro and all the rest of it come yeah. with 30 day trials. So what I was doing was loading up a 30 day trial of a program, doing every tutorial I could learn, um, 
doing as much of the work I could in those 30 days. And then after that, I moved on to another software thing, <laughs> learned that while doing it. And I was literally doing the film in three month stages of the free trial periods of the software. Yeah. Just, just so for a year. And in that year I've learned, obviously I did all the editing. I did all the grading, uh, all the sound, all the sound building, if you like. So all the layers of different sound, the foley, the music. I didn't write the music, but I've got, you know, people crew in. A composer was good enough, Lance Warlock, American composer. He'd read it. He saw, funny enough, the documentary when it aired, got in contact and went, what are you doing with the film? I told him, he said, I'll compose all the music for you free of charge. Because um, I think, you know, you had a rough ride. So I was mm-hmm. like, thank you. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I learned it all, all in three month stages. And then obviously, but it took me a year to, to finish it. And then I had to get another program. <laughs> Thankfully, Adobe had upgraded their program. So I got another 30 days out of it at the tail end and done the polish on it. Can I ask yeah. you then, in terms of what you already understood about, you know, you were, you were, you were churning out these, the screenplays as it were, early doors in this production and you went about and produced that. So, Having, having, I guess, having gained this power where you can now reconstruct it and play around with what you've got, including the sound design and stuff. What did, what did that teach you about, about film that you didn't know before you went into that process that you could do? It's, um, yeah, I mean, obviously learning editing, knowing what you're going to come out with, it does make a difference of then what I then want to film again. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, you, you know, everyone will tell you afterwards that you, you spend like, four hours getting the perfect shot and that come the edit is cut <laughs> it's like you know you don't, you don't need it yeah yeah, so yeah. now whenever i approach anything if i'm working on set with like other filmmakers or whatnot and they ask my advice i always say try and imagine the edit in your head just get the shots you need don't waste the time getting shots for the sake of getting shots you know what i mean it's no no i know funny enough, i was reading i was reading something similar about or listening to a podcast talking about screenwriting where it was like, try and make it as easy for the director to visualise what it is they're trying to do so they don't have to make it up. You know, yeah. so it's almost like if you can make it like a description of an ed- of, of, of what will get edited, then there's a good chance you'll get the shot that the editor needs when they're editing. Well, and, and I see it, and as long as obviously everyone involved sees the same vision, I guess that's the thing. So when you've got, as you were saying, you know, there's free, it's what the writer sees, it's what the director sees, it's what the editor sees. Mm. If everyone can see the same thing, yeah, I mean, it's a lot easier. You can film a lot quicker, certainly a lot cheaper, hmm. uh, and you can just crack on. It's But, now, yeah, I mean, learning the editing has changed my focus on how I approach film now, definitely. Just thinking of the production, uh, I notice that there's, uh, there's the, the stuff that's shot abroad, in inverted commas. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in terms of the story, so... Look, I've, I've spoke to someone that did a, a gothic western shot in Kent, so you know yeah. we, we know what's possible. So, so solving that problem of getting a, getting footage of what appears to be soldiers in Af- in Afghanistan or Iraq, is it? I can't remember that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. What did you do to sort of trick that for the camera? Where did you go to? What was your <laughs> what was your location for that? Just well, I was going to say, if any, when people see the film, I don't think I've tricked them into anything. <laughs> okay, but yeah, but the the the, the, license, the, the artistic license you're using to to tell, to convey that point. Yeah. What, what did you use? We we used a quarry that was in um, Ware in Hertfordshire. Okay. Um, which wasn't the quarry we was expecting. 
because when they said, yeah, we can use our crew, it was very sandy and it was perfect. Uh, but what they said was due to they were actually excavating in the one that they said we could use, we was given this little side one. Yeah. And it was one little mound of dirt. There was porter cabins there. <laughs> <laughs> there was a security cut. And then what we had to do was we went out and made makeshift a little market town right. to hide the, the prefabricated um, building that was there. Mm. And just shot on certain angles not to capture anything. And, of course, when, when you grade, I just threw on a tint and uh, a little blur because they're all flashbacks. Mm. And... Um, you know, just <laughs> used every trick I could learn on YouTube, basically. That's um, funny. That's why I want to know because I think, I think you know, a lot of people might get a bit sort of uh, what's called intimidated by the idea of that's what you need to shoot, but you don't necessarily have to go anywhere for lots of things. You know, it's it can be done, no. and 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 people are people can will be sympathetic to something that's that's trying to be convincing. I mean, I mean, it happens to the best. I mean, I remember reading an, an anecdote about. I mean, it's going to sound like a mate, you know. It's a Kurosawa said there was about a shot he got where it was like, you know, uh, there was a critic sort of trying to nail him on, you know, what was what was what was behind this shot? And he went, well, there was an airport to the right and there was a car factory to the left and I couldn't have that in shot. (laughs) So so these people have made a great essays about this scene. And basically it was composed because of what the constraints were, not because of maybe what the design was. Yeah, and I think that's it. If you can roll with the punches you're dealt with every day on set, mm. then, then that's it. I think that's the key to good filmmaking, being flexible enough that you can roll with the disasters rather than just think it's going to be plain sailing and worry about getting it perfect. What were some of the storytelling challenges for you in, in the edit then? You know, obviously you had um, them when you were writing it, but then, then what did you, you know, I guess balancing what you've got on, what you've got in terms of ca- what you've captured on on camera and what you need to convey. What what were some of the challenges there for you? Yeah, well, obviously, you know, it was written a certain way, so we filmed what the script wanted. And then when I thought, oh, no, it would be better if we told the story this way, you could still have to work with the limitations of what you've already filmed. Mm. And it's um, that, that, that was challenging. So some of the scenes I would cheat, I would cut it, and it just so happens because it was all meant to happen on the same day, people were in the same wardrobe. I could move it around a bit and other scenes I just cheated so much <laughs> Yeah, with backs of people's heads with what I needed them to say to get me to the next scene. Um, so Work I, with I what you can. Up. Work with what you can, Paul. Sorry? Work with what you can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've you got to work with what, what you had because it wasn't though I was going to and re, going to refilm something to make the storyline fit. So people will watch it and probably go, hmm, but it, there was a reason obviously it was filmed for a certain story and now it's a different one. So now, it's, given, um, given what you, you, the insight you gave us into the sort of rush you expected to do to pull this production together from the moment you got involved, or sorry, the moment yeah. you delivered that script, you, you didn't do too bad in terms of your casting, given you were casting on the hoof. And obviously most noticeable would be someone like, you know, Loose Women's Andrew McLean and, and yes, a couple yes. of faces people uh, might recognise from, from the likes of Hollyoaks or uh, EastEnders and stuff. So, what was what was your casting process? I mean, let's talk about Andrea first. Obviously, she features prominently on the poster and stuff. Um, how did you get her involved? She's not someone that I knew was an actor. No, well, she she's um, she hadn't. This was her debut role. To be fair, mm. it was a case of um, so obviously, I, my my wife is my greatest supporter, and I wouldn't be able to do nothing without her. And yeah. while while I was 
turning this, you know, getting a female lead into the script. It, it's weird because obviously anyone at, you know, within a certain age that's between 35 and 50 female mm. um, is either really famous and now lives in LA <laughs> or, or they're constantly working on soaps, you know, you could, you know, Coronation Street or EastEnders or, or any of them. Yeah. So it was a case of, I need someone with a particular look. And my wife just happened to put on Loose Women, to which Andrea was obviously presenting that day. And she went, you've just described this woman on the screen. The, you know, the weather girl from GMTV. And I turned and I was like, oh yeah. Well, you know, it's a phone call. So I phoned up her agent and um, just went, look, we're making this film. Uh, I'm interested in if Andrea would be, want to do the role because how I've written it, I'm looking at her on the screen right now. Uh, she contacted Andrea. Andrea said, well, look, I haven't acted before, but I would kick myself if I turned down something. She's probably kicking herself for saying yes now. But um, <laughs> she, but she come on and she gave it 110%. I mean, you couldn't ask for nothing more. You know, you, people you see on the TV, you always think, oh, you know, and they're going to come to a low-budget set. And But true professional all the way I couldn't really knock it and of course the most surprising thing with Andrew is she recently just won the best actress award for out of the Cannes Film Festival um early uh, late last year right. and she actually beat Karen Gillian for the prize wow so just yeah just to, everyone's going who's Karen Gillian obviously from Doctor Who Guardians of the Galaxy and most recently Jumanji she had been entered for a film she was in called Bound for Greatness mm. and was against Andrea, and Andrea took the award. So I think that's a testament to Andrea on her debut role, if she can compete with someone like that. So from your point of view, what, what was it you were doing as a director then to get the best out of Andrea? Um, well, one was getting her over the nerves, because, you know, but, I mean, the, the great thing about Andrea is everything she's done on TV is light. So if anyone's you know, always been able to control what's being done and think before acting. It's someone who's just used to live TV. And that's how Andrea took it. She, you know, she's used to, you can't make the mistake because it's live TV. So to get the chance to make a mistake and then go, right, let's just reset. Let's do that again. Hmm. You know, it's perfect for her. And like I say, the first day, just getting over the jitters, but she met the crew. She met the rest of the cast. Obviously, um, a character is in the film is completely different to how she is in real life. So it's even more challenging with someone who just stepped completely out of their comfort zone. And, um, you know, I, I, I just can't praise her enough, to be fair. So It's always interesting when you see someone who you used to see and play light do dark, isn't it? Yes. And, uh, and this is the very reason why the judges actually, like I say, gave her the award over Karen, because yeah. they said, Karen in Bound for Greatness was very much the same as how she is in other things, where obviously Andrea played someone so opposite to how you see her on the TV, how she is in real life, how she conducts herself, that performance-wise, there was more of a stretch. Um, and like I say, it was just nice that other people recognised it. So. Now, we've obviously established that the sort of the stress and strain you had of what became of this film in sort of post production yeah. but, but give us give us some of your give it give me one of your favorite memories of the production like where you thought i've really sort of punched this film of its weight with what i've been able to do here 
Um, well, first of all, I think the inclusion of Danny Midwinter okay. as my antagonist. Yeah. That because I didn't originally want Danny. He just won an award um, for Freight for Best Actor. Yeah. And the the character was very similar. And I said, well, look, as much as he's a good actor, I don't want him because he'd just be coming on set to do same same. Yeah. Um, but Danny said, no, please. He got in contact with me. He said, look, let me audition. Let me show you what I can do with this character. And obviously, he brought something so completely different. Um, it actually changed the film. And oh, really? how then every scene worked around it because it just took the storyline somewhere different. And everyone who worked then in a scene with Dan because of the way he was portraying the character changed the way they came in with their mindset. They originally saw their character and it just became something completely different. And so what, what, did, that, what was it? What was it? What did he, what did he change then? What did he, what did he do that you didn't see in the character? Um, well, the character was very, I mean, originally the character, when it was written, was with Alan Ford in mind. Okay. Um, so, you know, you've got that brick top, um, nice little bit of monologues, um, but he has a certain look, therefore yeah. he has a certain presence about him. Mm-hmm. And then Dan come in and just, we sat down and we talked about what, what the character is and, you know, the big reveals that come through the film. And he just went, this is how I see the guy, just, just. Let me go. So I'm, I'm classed, well, actors say I'm an actor's director because, you know, I believe an actor knows what they're doing. I shouldn't need to tell them how to act. Mm. So they get some free range. And yeah, how Dan put across the Brannigan role, it was just like amazing. I hadn't even envisioned it. Um, but of course it, he played it, his character with full awareness of, um, someone with, mental illness you know they okay. put on the face to the public but the minute they're in a dark room on their own all of it all the depression everything just comes out and dan's performance just highlights that and it was like yeah i didn't t- you know i didn't anticipate that take on the character so and, that, and that's what changed it so that that was a good scene um but in results there's one scene that wasn't in the script and it's right near the end and mm-hmm. dan's all alone in this room um, and he said, I've got an idea. Can we work it in? I said, yeah, but having now worked with Dan, I know how to get the best out of him. So it was like, he's very impatient when he's got the idea, he builds up. So I purposely put him in this room and went, look, I'll be back in five minutes and went off. And two hours later, <laughs> I yeah. came back and by which time Dan was stewing. I mean, you know, I've just, his directors walked out, left him for two hours. He looked at me, I had the cameraman with me, and I went, three, two, one, action. And he pulled this scene off one take, and you would never be able to mimic that again. And it was <laughs> it was just an amazing experience to watch him. Um, but there was so much anger in him because obviously he was genuinely angry at me as I'm waving at him from behind the camera. That yeah. um, it was just amazing. And the two actors, Mel Mills and Kelly George, that are in the scene with him, I just went, forget the script, go with your gut, and it's just a natural organic scene that wasn't scripted. It was purely improvised. And it, yeah, it's one of the most memorable scenes in the film. What have you got coming up next? Pray tell um, in the film, in the film world. Okay. Well, at the moment we've got, um, you know, I'm, I'm back on track and fully motivated now. And we've got this lovely little film called 24 little hours, which is a, a revenge action film that we actually start filming 
Uh, we have the screening on the 18th and we start filming literally the following week on the 24th. Nice. Um, yeah, and obviously the key is we're going to film a full feature in eight days. So that that's that's the goal. So I'm going to take everything I've learned over all these years and put it to the test mm -hmm. and, and show people that usually out making shorts in like 10 days in, or 14 days, just making a 10-minute short, I'm going to show them how you can make an eight-minute feature film in the same amount of time for the same sort of money. And have you already cast that one? That's casting. We're just finishing up casting at the moment. Um, there's a couple of familiar faces from the landscape cast in it. Cool. Who's that? You know? uh, Danny Midwinter, Danny Young, uh, Mark Bannerman's pestering my ear roll. <laughs> and there's a few others, but I don't want to say just yet because, you know, let's this, this get the screening out of the way. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, congratulations on getting getting yourself to this point after the uh, the 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 rough road you had to get had to travel down to get here. Uh, let's yeah, re let's remind people when they can see your landscaper lies. Okay, so anyone who's in and around the London area on the 18th of January, um, get yourself down to the Courthouse Hotel. Um, just around the corner from Oxford Circus Underground Station. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get your tickets on event bright and just search for a landscape of lies i'll put i'll put i'll put a link in the show notes for lovely uh, for listeners uh, and then after that if you can catch it in a local cinema great if not come spring it will be available on dvd is there, is there a website with a list of where it's getting screened it is on Film Vault. So if you look at the company that's doing the theatrical release for us, um, yeah. so Film Vault, all one word, I believe, dot com. Again, we'll put the link um, in then if that's got all the, all yeah, the screens. Yeah, I'll on. throw it to you. Nice one. Uh, but that has a list of all the cinemas that it's playing at. And of course, Fantastic. it'll be in my hometown, Romford, I believe, the 3rd of February. Excellent, excellent. Are you going to do a Q&A and stuff? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm doing a Q&A, obviously, on the 18th. Yeah. Uh, Romford, yeah, because obviously <laughs> the cinema's literally three minutes from my house. So I'm quite happy to uh, <laughs> and do a Q&A. Yeah, no problem. Well, look, I'm glad you got to this point with your film. Thank you. And uh, good luck with the release. All right, thank you very much. Britflix.com podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising. So if you enjoyed it, Please make sure to subscribe at iTunes and write me a review. Thank you. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager, only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.